0: How long does it take to fry an egg? Three minutes? Four? How do you like it? Over easy? Sunny side up? How long does it take to make some chips? From fresh. That's peeling, slicing, parboiling, and baking. 40 minutes? An hour? What about if you're cooking for 500 people? A morning? Or perhaps a day? How long do you think a foiled tray of fried egg and chips lasts before it goes cold? Before the whites of the eggs turn rubbery? Before the chips lose their crunch? Until the vegetable oil pools in the corner of the tray? Victorian prisons, and many of those open since, were built using a design that was centred around the kitchen. ...which sat at the beating heart of the establishment The spider design A central kitchen meant food could be cooked en masse... ...and served fairly efficiently There was no big distance to travel... ...between the kitchen, the servery and 800 hungry men There wasn't much opportunity for the chips to go soggy... ...or the chicken to go cold The Strangeways riots in 1990 changed all of this More than a thousand prisoners have taken over Strangeways Jail in Manchester. A hundred protest on the roof, others take over the main cell block. Strangeways Prison, Manchester, England. This gothic dungeon is the site of the longest, most destructive prison riot in modern history. Enraged by overcrowding and alleged mistreatment, over 300 inmates... Prison architecture became one of the defining hangovers of the Strangeways riots which lasted for 25 days, the longest prison riot in British history. But why did they last so long? Well, the prisoners were able to gain complete control over the prison, including the kitchen, pantry and store cupboards. They were self-sufficient. Deemed a national embarrassment, prisons began to withdraw centralised kitchens in favour of decentralised kitchen units away from the wings. These units are often set apart from the main accommodation intent on being more isolated and secure, should a breach ever occur again. The downside? That tray of chips might have an extra 20 minutes to travel before it reaches the wing, let alone your plate. The human cost of this added security is felt by the prisoners who are dependent on a system to rehabilitate them, preferably in clean wings wings and and humane humane living conditions, conditions, as the justice secretary put it. But what if this isn't happening? And what if the quality of food is making rehabilitation that little bit harder? What if it takes over 45 minutes for your dinner to travel from the oven to the hot trolley, across the prison grounds, into the servery and finally onto your plate? What if you have to eat that dinner on your lap, alone, perched next to your toilet? And what if that dinner is so heavy with carbohydrates, all you feel like doing afterwards is going to sleep? I'm Lucy Vincent, and for the past four years, my life has been consumed by prison food. Over the next eight weeks, I'll be guiding you through the UK prison system's Fractured Food Programme, with a little help from some of the people who've lived it, eaten it, and cooked it. Uh, now the tiramisu, I take some madeleine and put them in coffee and put them on the bottom of the Tupperware, well, for example, you know. I put a little bit of creme, I put the powder, you know, the chocolate powder, and Mm -hmm. in the fridge for the whole night, and then, day sorry, it's very, very nice. You're probably wondering why a 28-year-old with no previous convictions, touch wood, is introducing a podcast about prison food. In 2016, I launched Food Behind Bars as the UK's national campaign to improve prison food. For years, I'd worked in restaurants, in kitchens, and front of house, ending up finding my way as a freelance journalist when I stumbled across a report by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons. The 14-page document was the first of its kind in this country, assessing food standards nationwide and going some way in highlighting the stark inadequacies across the prison food system. I was hooked. Unlike the food in schools and hospitals, the subject wasn't discussed, not a Jamie Oliver in sight. And yet violence and self-harm in prisons was hitting an all-time high. Continued to rise ever since. Was food playing a part in this? In the report, only 29% of prisoner survey respondents described the food they received as good or very good. I've spoken to hundreds of prisoners over the years and everyone has something to say about food. The visitors' food is awful. And given that this is the only place you get to eat with your beloved one, it would be amazing if the visitors' cafes served nice stuff so that you could buy nice stuff for them one day a week. You just carbs. So you'd have possibly chips and pasta in one meal and then you just go and lie in your bed over bang-up over lunch. And then you get knock again. So you're just eating all this really calorie-dense meal and you're just going to lie in bed after eating it. Now, in 2021, after becoming the UK's only charity dedicated to transforming prison food, we're working with prisons up and down the country to help transform people's lives through food that nourishes the body and mind. From Second Window, welcome to Food Behind Bars, season one. Across eight episodes, we'll be unravelling the story of how an inadequate and inconsistent prison food system has evolved, how it's affecting everyone, and what happens next. I'm Lucy Vincent, and this is episode one, The Report. Okay. Mm, Rolling. go for it. Cool. Way back in 2016, I was 24. I was kind of writing freelance as a journalist, but I wasn't really making any money from it. And I started drawing on food and cooking, which is something that I've always done. I've worked in restaurants since I was about 14. And that was when I came across the report that inspired me to start Food Behind Bars. I'd never been to prison. I'd never even met anyone who'd been to prison at the stage of my life. You know, I was living in London. I was in pubs. I bought my expensive coffees. I loved going out for dinner. I spent all of my very minimal disposable income on all of those things. I couldn't have been more removed from that side of society, I suppose. And. I came across the article. It kind of hit the news, but not really in a a big way. Most of the stuff about prisons in the news is more the juicy stuff that people want to read, which is, you know, the crimes and the violence and the drugs and the overcrowding. And it was the journalist in me that felt as though initially, um, even though I felt passionate about the subject and quite, I guess, quite riled up, um, really I felt like there was a story there. And that was really when I started sitting on the phone talking to people um, and doing my research and speaking to people who've been in prison. And I just built this picture and it was a far more complex picture than I initially thought when I read the report. I mean, my my initial feeling was what must it feel like to be in prison and to eat in prison and to have that kind of freedom of cooking and eating what you like taken away from you. If prison food isn't great, how, how is how that impacting them? My initial feeling to begin with was perhaps that wasn't gonna have a good impact on them. And I suppose one of my biggest misconceptions and, and possibly most people's biggest misconceptions because of the media and because of TV is that we all have an image in our head of the typical prisoner. And we already have an opinion on that person because we know that they have committed a crime and are in prison for a reason. There is a huge mix of individuals in prison and a far greater snapshot of society than perhaps we would initially think. Life in Prison, Food, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons, July 2016. Ian Dickens, inspector. Women between nineteen and seventy-four years old as two thousand two hundred ...but the National Offender Management Service calories. does not measure calorific content. Of Spending on food in prisons has been decreasing. Budget All allowance reason. per prisoner per day was previously and in some two prisons, too. As little as one pound eighty seven prisoner frustration per over day food can serve as a catalyst for aggression hot and meal descent. was served at lunchtime. The, at the bus bus evening bus meal bus consisting of a 20 20 sandwich for the next quality of the food provided is insufficient. I had no preconceptions about prison food and I you know my my only feeling was that well it probably can't be good which is what most people think. Actually when you get into the nitty-gritty of going 24 hours on a weekend without having a hot meal you know that really shocked me. You know lunch at 10 past 11 in the morning. My first question was why? <laughs> my second question was What impact is that having? You know, your lunch is at 11, your dinner's at 4 p.m. What happens after 4 and before 11 a.m.? When I read the report about prison food, I mean, first of all, it built this really varied picture, which actually over the last few years has, has remained very true. You know, it is a really varied picture. So the inspector, it's Her Majesty's Inspector of Prisons, he picked up on really positive examples of prison food and how they had a good impact. But he also shone a light on the not-so-positive examples of prison food. So my first impression was, A, this issue is really complex, and B, there's obviously some obstacles um, that are sitting in the way. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you're cooking food for an institution, those obstacles are probably going to be budget, they're probably going to be the logistics and the scalability of things. And also the people, you know, if you think about Jamie Oliver doing school food. Awful food, looks disgusting, tastes disgusting, covered in additives and all that old business. He had to do a lot of convincing kids uh, to eat vegetables and to eat differently. So you're dealing with all sorts of people as well. I suppose what's different with prisons is you've got this added layer, this added obstacle, which is public perception. You don't have that with schools and hospitals because it's kind of a universally acknowledged fact that kids and ill people deserve to eat well. The minute you start talking about prisoners, things get a little bit sketchy. And particularly early on, I mean, using my experience on the BBC Daily Politics show, that was my first real wake-up call. Lucy Vincent, some people would say we spend enough on prisoners, each prisoner place costs around £33,000 a year. Do we really need to spend more? Um, do, you, do you consider then having just good food and decent food a privilege or a necessity to prisons? Well, obviously, it's a necessity, but we also have to strike the balance between what people expect in a prison, which is not cordon bleu, uh, high high end cuisine. I mean, I'm not pitching three course um, Michelin star (laughs) meals. I'm talking about things that's just fresh, healthy, really simple, cheap food um, that um, they'll enjoy eating more than they're eating at the moment, but mainly um, to improve their behaviour. I mean, part of I went on Twitter afterwards, and. What was interesting is um, I realised how divisive the subject is because the only comments I had were either tearing me to shreds or people who were so positive, they just instantly got it. They, you know, there's no explanation, they got it. They, you know, feed people better in prison, it impacts the whole of society. But on the flip side, the people who didn't get it really didn't get it. Um, and actually, early on, you know, particularly, you know, a lot of my friends were really supportive. But I was having the same conversation again and again and again with people, which was, "Why are you doing this? You know, why do these people deserve it? um Why should we care?" You know, I remember getting into arguments with people at house parties, and you know, strangers who would ask me what I did, or someone would introduce me, as they often did, because I think it was probably quite an interesting thing about me. Um, about what I was doing, particularly when I started visiting prisons. And some people just took it really, really badly. And, and you know, I can't blame them for that because like I've said, I think a lot of our views and perceptions of prison are based on the, the media. And also there's no getting away from the fact that a lot of people in prison have done awful, awful things. However, I found the viewpoint that prisoners don't deserve this. Um, they don't deserve good food. They don't even deserve to be fed. I found that really one-dimensional and really complex. And what's changed in the last few years is we've built a reputation as an organisation. We've built really good relationships with prisons. We've ran um, activities in prisons and initiatives. And we've kind of proven in a very small way that that what we're setting out to do works and, and has a positive impact. Um, And really, that was a big motivation behind wanting to do a podcast, you know, it stemmed from years of writing articles about this. And I thought, well, how can I demonstrate this huge, complex subject in a way that feels authentic and a way that puts the individuals experiencing it at the forefront? And that can mean, yes, the person in their cell eating their food, or it can mean the person cooking the food. Or it can mean the person who's not eating the food at all and is cooking everything in their kettle. Yeah, hello. Hey, is that Danny? (laughs) (laughs) So, I went to prison in 2007 when I was 21. So, who are we going to meet? Who's going to help me tell this story? Ex-prisoners prisoners, their loved ones, catering managers, campaigners, researchers, academics. These people are going to help show what's possible, but also illustrate you know, the, the harsh reality of prison food and some of the barriers that kitchens are facing in providing really good quality prison food. But also helping us understand what it feels like to eat that food whilst you're in prison and the impact that that might have on your sentence and well after release. Like Sophie, for example, who found that her sentence actually had a huge impact on the way that she ate outside of prison and her health as well. And like Josie Bevan, whose husband was in prison and after he was released late last year, she's really began to realise that the huge impact that his sentence has had on his eating habits and his overall health and well-being. Or like Danny, a prisoner in France who's surviving his sentence by taking complete control over his diet cooking everything in his cell and reaping the rewards that a good diet and a positive relationship with food can bring. By no stretch of the imagination am I an expert in the prison system, but I'm certainly more clued up than I was back then, and I have spent a lot more time in prison. And that informed our decision to become a charity. I realised quite early on that the charity world could be quite slow moving and a little bit outdated. And I came across all these incredible people doing incredible work and often no one knew about it. And talking and campaigning was so integral to Food Behind Bars in the years before that I knew that I wanted to make that part of the charity going forward. Now that you know a little bit about me, the mission and the characters of our story, I'm gonna take you back. A summer's day in a cozy front room with one of the women that began this whole journey. But that's next time. This is season one of Food Behind Bars, brought to you by Second Window. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more like it, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show was presented by me, Lucy Vincent, and produced by Second Window. The edit was put together by Taylor Fawcett. Coming up next, episode two inside, outside.